We good? So first off, I would like to uh, I'd like to thank Trevor. You know, this is the first time I've been talking in the morning on Saturday, and that has two benefits. One is that you guys have had some coffee in you, so you're not going to fall asleep. I think I was in Beulah Beach, and the guy, like, very front row, he's asleep during my talk, and he's, like, snoring loudly. That was awkward. Yeah, I know. I hate Chris. Don't do it. The second reason is that usually us young guys, and we're not young anymore, we get up here and these giants have already gone before us. And they've given like three quarters of our talk because these guys disciple us, right? They've taught us almost everything that we know. And so I'm so grateful for that, that three quarters of my talk has not been given already. Um, but really on a serious note, these giants like Jerry and Winston especially, at least in my life. I'm so grateful, so grateful for them that they have allowed me, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like a babe in their presence, and they've allowed me to stand on their shoulders and view Jesus from that perspective, and I've seen so much more of Jesus because of those guys, and I'm really grateful. So that's um, an encouragement to you guys to listen well when those guys are up here on Zoom speaking. So with that, let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men. I thank you for your Holy Spirit working amidst us. And Father, I just, uh, I acknowledge that I'm a broken man, that I fear man, I'm insecure. I hate, you know, I hate being up here. Um, and I desire my own glory rather than your glory. And I just admit all that and bring it out into the light. And I pray that none of that, not one of those things, Lord, would hinder your truth going forth. That I would be bold to preach your word this morning. That you would be glorified and, uh, and we would be changed. Thank you so much for dying on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. And Lord, I just pray that you would come back quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. So guys, in, um, by way of introduction, what I want to do is I want to first talk about why I picked this title for my talk, and then I want to talk about why I wanted to give it. So God's gift of pain. And I'll put the verses that I'm going to go through up on the board so you don't need to turn to them. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now that word granted, it means given. It means gifted. It's actually the same Greek word as the word grace, just a different tense. So if I reword this verse, for it has been, it has been grace to you. It has been a gift given to you of God that you would be saved and that you would experience suffering. Now that first one, that's easy for us to swallow. Most of us believe, and that's easy to understand, right? That it's a gift of God, our salvation. Um, Ephesians 2.8 tells us that much, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, that is a gift of God. But how many of you guys believe that it's actually a gift of God's grace that you suffer? Very few of us believe that. Peter also says something similar. 
he says that suffering is the true grace of God. And then he gives us a command, and this is out of the New American Standard, he gives us a command to stand firm amidst it. So do you stand firm amidst suffering and tribulation? Well, if you're like me, you feel like you don't most of the time. And so I ask myself the question, why don't I? If I'm supposed to stand firm amidst it, supposed to go through it properly, why don't I? Well, as I think about that, it's probably because I don't truly believe that it's a gift of God in my life. We've been fed and we've fed ourselves lies for decades in regard to pain. We failed to understand that pain's the gift of God in our life, and I think that there's even a deeper misunderstanding that we have, and maybe we don't understand it's a gift of God in our life because we don't quite understand one or more of four things. We misunderstand God, we misunderstand ourselves, we misunderstand this world, or we misunderstand pain itself. And during my talk, you can see the outline. We're going to go through these um, systematically as we kind of work our way through the talk. What potentially are some of our misunderstandings in regard to these? Now, guys, this, man, I cannot... um, I cannot stress this enough, that this topic, these truths that we're going to go over, they are so important. I guarantee you that if you don't understand and process pain biblically in your life, you're not going to finish this race of faith well. You're going to become a bitter old man at the very least, or you're going to reject Christ altogether. You will not finish this race well. Too many men amidst pain, they just fall away. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for myself. I want us to be men that run this race with endurance. We cross the finish line. We receive the prize. We enter into an eternity and spend an eternity with Jesus. I don't want any of us to fall away. I might recommend that you make it a a goal to memorize most of these verses that we're going to go over today. These are so important. Okay, so let's dive in. Let's start. And I think my talk naturally has some breaks. You're welcome if something's, you know, completely off to ask a question, you know, amidst, um, you know, a portion of the talk, but I will stop at various portions to, uh, to take questions. And I'd really love it, especially if you're falling asleep, just raise your hand, even if you don't have a question, or go back and get some coffee. So let's talk about our misunderstanding of God. So there are five truths that we major on in our household, that God exists, that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that God is sovereign and good in that we are slaves of Christ. Now, the first three, I kind of call them the big three, that I think those are indispensable if you're going to call yourself a Christian. That if you don't believe those first three, I don't think legitimately, biblically, you can call yourself a Christian. Now, the next two, I think, are indispensable to finishing the race well as a Christian. That without those, you're not going to finish well. Those have to be sunk down deep into your soul. You must understand them. You must apply them. You must preach them to yourself over and over and over again. That if 
you're going to process pain biblically, you must understand these things. And what we're going to do, we're going to start by talking about the fact that God is sovereign and good, and then we're going to move on to being slaves of Christ after that. Now, the word sovereignty or sovereign, um, it's sort of in the Bible, in the Greek, but sort of not. And maybe, maybe a verse that kind of uh, captures the meaning of it is Daniel 4.35. And this is not Daniel speaking, but this is actually King Nebuchadnezzar speaking after he's been humbled by God. And what he says is that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, the sovereignty of God is kind of like God's free will on steroids. We have free will, right? But I don't have free will to really do whatever I want. I can't look out at the mountains in Tucson and say, man, I want to jump over those mountains, so I'm going to jump over those mountains. But God does, right? It's like this unique mixture of free will plus all-powerfulness. That's the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to boil it down and make it even simpler. That for my, my talk, the definition of the sovereignty of God is that God does it. And now, if you're going to understand the sovereignty of God, you have to understand three stories in the Bible. You got to understand the story of Joseph, you got to understand the story of Job, and you got to understand the story of Jesus. And we're going to go through those. And what you have to do is you have to ask yourself the question who was the causative agent of pain or suffering or tribulation in their life? So let's go through that. You guys know the stories. And so this is Joseph, Jacob's son, Israel's son, okay? So if you remember, Joseph, he's kind of hated by his brothers, right? He's thrown into the pit, then he's sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife kind of um, frames him, and he gets thrown into prison. So maybe you might say, well, it was Joseph's brothers that did it to him. Maybe it was Potiphar. Maybe it was Potiphar's wife, right? Well, how about we look at Job? We recently studied that book. Um, you know, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans kind of wiped out everything that he had. Fire fell from heaven, so maybe fate did it to him or God did it to him. Um, the wind came from the wilderness and knocked down the house and, and killed all of his kids. Satan struck him with boils. So you have a lot of potentials there. Um, how about Jesus? Well, who betrayed him? Judas, right? Who entered Judas? Satan. He was delivered, and, and uh, Bill talked about this yesterday. He was de delivered over to the Sanhedrin. And then from there, he was given over to Pilate. So we got a lot of potentials there. Let's go a little bit deeper into the Bible and see what else the Bible says about who was the causative agent of pain or suffering in these guys' lives. So how about Joseph? Genesis 45.8, and this is actually Joseph speaking. <clears throat> he says, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So it wasn't you, my brothers, that sent me here, but God did this to me. How about Job? This is the last chapter of Job, and I'm going to skip the beginning part, but basically all of his acquaintances, his brothers and sisters come to him and they're comforting him. And this is what the Bible says, that they're comforting him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Hmm. How about Jesus? Well, as I, Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased, now the Lord here is actually God the Father, so it pleased God to, prove, to bruise Jesus, that God the Father has put him to grief. God the Father has made Jesus' soul an offering for sin. The Bible says that God did it to them. The Bible doesn't say that he allowed it, but that he did it. That God was sovereign in their lives, and God is sovereign in our lives. Now let's look at the goodness of God. When you're talking about the goodness of God, you have to ask yourself two questions. One, how good is God? And then number two, what does his goodness look like in, his, in our lives? Because I think we misinterpret or we misunderstand both of those questions or we answer them wrong. So how good is God? James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now you have to understand this verse in context to understand it, that right before this, James has talked for 15 verses about trials and tribulation and pain. And then he comes to this verse and he says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. So he's saying that that pain, that suffering is a good gift of God in your life. But he's saying more than that, isn't he? He's also saying it's a perfect gift. Now fast forward a couple months to Christmas morning and you guys can get a good gift under the Christmas tree or you can get the perfect gift under the Christmas tree. Which one would you want? Obviously the perfect gift, right? There's nothing better than the perfect gift. And that's how good God is in our life, that he brings the perfectly good thing into our life. Now let's answer that second question. What does his goodness look like? You guys probably know this verse, Romans 8.28. Hopefully you have it memorized. But all things work together for good in our lives, in Christians' lives, right? That God brings all these things into our lives for our good. Well, the question is, what is that good? And all you have to do is go to the next couple verses. He says, our good is that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
His perfect goodness is not leaving us as we are, but it's in making us into the image of Jesus Christ, sanctifying us and ultimately glorifying us in eternity with him. Amidst the worst and the least of pain, do you believe that God is sovereign and perfectly good in your life? If towards others you harbor anger or unforgiveness, the answer to that question is no, because biblically you can never have a problem with another person. How about amidst the relentless trials of life, do you find yourself complaining all the time? Do you view yourself as an innocent victim, blaming Satan and others for your trouble? These are red flags that should alert you that you're not thinking biblically. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 is the perfect exhortation for us. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Notice the two D words in this verse. This is typically where we go. We despise and we get discouraged amidst pain and trials and suffering. We despise the person or the thing that we view as the author of that pain in our life. And sometimes we get discouraged amidst it and kind of crawl into a hole. This verse makes it really clear that God did it to Joseph, God did it to Job, God did it to Jesus. God does it to you and me, God is sovereign in our lives, and he does it to us for our perfect good. So before I move on to the next one and talking about ourselves, let me pause and see if there's any questions. Is that going down sideways for you guys? Some of this stuff... As I prepared this talk, I think these things are foundational. They're actually very basic truths, but they're so counterintuitive to what we think inside naturally and what the culture and the world around us thinks. And so they take a lot of work and effort to actually sink them down deep into their soul. So these are things that I hope will... Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Number three. Hello. So Bryce, you said the the verse that kind of illustrates the fact that God did it to Joseph, Job, and Jesus. Was the Hebrews 5 verse? Or, or which verse are you coming on to the verse? For who? For all, all of them? Yeah, for the, the, you said there's a verse that, that kind of illustrates. Yeah, the, the Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, that he's the one that does it in our lives. There's, there's countless verses that you can go to. I've picked some, and... Um, at the end of my talk, I have a card for all of you guys to take home with you, and we'll review it real quickly, but on that card, there are tons of verses um, that talk about that God is the one that does it to us. Lamentations 3, 37, 38 is another one. Um, Psalm 115, 3, it says, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. That's a great verse to talk about the sovereignty of God. Yeah, go ahead. Grab a, grab a mic. Number six. Uh, yes, I was just wondering if uh, the slide right before this one. Yeah. If we could just go back to that. You bet. 
maybe. That one? Yeah, I just needed to see that. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. You bet. That was an easy question to answer. Yeah. Yeah, I got a question. Uh, with Joseph and his brothers, when they sold them to the slave, and you said that was God's gift, was that God's gift or was that free will? So, I'm really glad that you asked that question. Um, this stuff's confusing. You know, I, I struggled with this too. So, are you asking if it was free will for the brothers to do that? Um, yeah, I'm asking, like, it wasn't the brothers who, I mean, obviously it was God's plan all along, but yeah. was that God's gift or was that, wasn't that the brothers doing that for them? Will you read Genesis 50, 20? This is one of those classic verses that you guys got to have down in your head. And we talk a lot of these at these retreats. We talk about the sovereignty of God and we talk about the responsibility of man, that both of those are true. So read that verse to me and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Uh, 50, 20. Uh, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it is, it is for good in order to bring it about it as it is in this day to save many people alive. So how should those brothers who did that evil thing to Joseph view their actions? As a, it's like a wrong thing. I mean, yeah, that they did evil, right? They're going to be responsible for their actions mm -hmm. that they did to Joseph. On the flip side, how should Joseph view what they did? She views the right thing because he got to save his family in the long run. Well, he, he goes past them. He goes beyond them. And he goes up into the heavens. And he looks at the causative agent of those things in his life. And he says, God, you did this to me. You might have used these people in my life. They sinned. There's no denying that, but you did it for my good. So to me, it's a matter of perspective. Are you sitting in the seat of the one who's being harmed? Or I shouldn't say it that way. Sitting in the seat of the one that is um, receiving the pain? Or are you the one that's giving the pain? Because you have to have a different perspective biblically. Does that make sense? I don't want to blend the two of those too much because they are kind of uh, opposite truths and tinnies that people talk about. Kevin? Can I, ask, can I ask an application question? Yeah. Would you recommend praying for pain? <laughs> no. <laughs> if it is a perfect gift for our life? Um, I would not. <clears throat> I think that, okay, we're a bunch of turkeys, right, guys? We are, we're, we're fools, we're idiots. God knows the exact temperature and duration to cook a turkey and make it luscious. I have no idea. I mean, yeah. I'm going to ask for God's perfect will in my life, understanding that he's the master chef, he's the master cook. He knows exactly how to sanctify my soul and... Um, I want as little pain in my life as possible, but I also know that pain is part of the process of sanctification. And we're going to keep rolling through that, but um, yeah. I, th I think, I didn't put this in my talk, but I think some people, they actually believe pain is good. 
right? I mean, maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, I mean, people would flog themselves, you know, or sit out in the middle of winter and sleep outside just so they thought that inflicting themselves with that kind of pain would result in the destruction of their flesh. And it's a little bit of a problem of dualism. And I'm not a, I mean, Jerry will come up here later on today and maybe he'll talk about that subject, but that basically the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And there are some problems with that kind of thinking. Yeah. One, would you make a clarification between allowed versus cause? Yeah. That always rises up. Yeah. Some people I've heard talk about the sovereignty of God and they say that allow is the same thing as caused. I just don't see it that way. I think if you allow something, it means that somebody else is the causative agent. So it, it, uh, it takes God out of the sovereign role. And so probably the more you guys ask me questions about this stuff, and the more you push me, it's going to be really hard for me to answer these questions. I just really encourage you to wrestle with them. But God does not allow it. God does it. And it blows my mind to think about the magnitude of, he's like the perfect, is it like a process engineer that works out all the processes that need to happen in order for the end product to come out right on the other side? I mean, he's doing that with a few billion people. I mean, it's so. Any other questions? Okay. Let's talk about our misunderstanding with ourselves. So, men, let me move. Over. We have a disease, don't we? We have a disease that separates us from a holy God. And that disease is sin. And it's not just that we commit sin, but that we are sin. And that's a big distinction that if you don't understand, talk to some men here that have been coming here because you need to understand that. That everything inside of us that is in our flesh is resistant to being to God being God in our lives. Most people that I come across, most Christians, they believe that they're pretty good people. But the Bible tells us that spiritually we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Now briefly, we got this way in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, in their actions declared that they wanted to be like God. They basically took God off of his throne and ascended that throne for themselves. Romans 1 tells us that all of mankind has done the same thing, that they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever that we've taken him off of his throne, put him down here, and we've walked up those steps and assumed our position on the throne. Now, most of you, I assume, are Christians. And so there's a point where us as Christians, we put our faith in Jesus. And what we said, God, 
that's just dumb for me to be on the throne. I'm going to walk down those stairs so that you can have your throne all to yourself, right? And we've, and we've stayed perfectly down there at the base of the throne, right? Eh. You know, we, we receive that Holy Spirit in us at salvation. Tim talked about that. But we still have that old nature. We have that fleshly nature. And what do we do? We start, start taking steps, right? Let me just sneak a step or two back up on that throne. Because we want to take control back of our lives. Pain targets this continual desire of our flesh. First Peter 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, this is a little bit tricky of a verse. But basically, he's saying that our suffering has resulted in the ceasing of our sin. Not the ceasing of us committing sin, but in order to understand what he means by the ceasing, you have to read the next little phrase that I've underlined, that we should no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of us, but for the will of God. Pain in God's grace is God's gracious thumb pushing us down, keeping us submissive and humble. It reminds us that we're slaves of Christ, that our lives are not our own. It knocks us off those stairs leading up to God's throne. And this is that fifth truth that we major on in our family, that we're slaves of God, bought at a price, that we're not our own. And now remember, we're slaves either way, right? Before we're Christians, we're slaves of sin and of ourselves. When we give our lives to Christ, we become slaves of him. Pain in God's hands targets our will, our desire for autonomy. It helps make us and keeps us slaves of Christ. And just to hit that thought a little bit more, I want to use the example of Jonah. You guys know the story of Jonah, most of you. Jonah was a lot like us, right? He was a follower of God, a child of God. And what did God ask him to do? He asked him to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And do you guys remember what Jonah said? Nope, not going to do it. And he ran, right? He ran from God, got on a, a boat. And what did God do? Brought a little bit of pain into his life, didn't he? Sent a storm, got him thrown overboard, and then got him eaten by a big fish. And this is what he says in the belly of the fish. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Let me paraphrase this verse for you, and this is just in my own um, 
my own understanding that this is what I think is going on in Jonah's mind. God, man, you've put me in a lot of torque and pain. And I realize now, because you did that, just how foolish I was for me to lead my own life, for me to be the God of my own life. I am an idiot. I remember that vow that I made to you, that you would be the Lord of my life, that I wanted you to be the Lord of my life. I repent in dustcloth and ashes, and I want to make good on that promise that I made to you. Men, because we have a fleshly, depraved nature, because we want to be God in our own lives, pain is necessary to make us and keep us God's humble slaves. Let me pause there and see if there are any questions. Okay. It's critical, men, that you understand that you're nothing. In fact, that you're worse than nothing. That you want to be God in your own life. And pain is helpful in restraining that sinful lust of ours. So let's move on to where am I headed? to this world. Now remember, the thesis of my talk is that if we're not standing well amidst pain, it's because we don't believe that it's God's gift in our life. And if we don't believe truly that it's God's gift in our life, it's a problem in our thinking in one of four arenas, right? It's our thinking with God, our thinking with ourselves, our thinking about the world, or our thinking about pain itself. And so now we're going to talk about the world around us. Most Christians are drunk on the temporal. We are what I would call temporal optimists. And so see if this is you. The temporal optimist believes that this world is able to be perfected, that utopia is and should be attained this side of the grave. He says things like this to himself, or he believes things like this. God wants me to be happy and pleasured in life. Therefore, that's my goal. If I'm good enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm powerful enough, or if I'm rich enough, I can achieve my goals in life. I can find utopia this side of the grave. He's also a fixer, and he always believes that the grass is greener on the other side, right? I just need to work harder to fix this. I just need to find the right formula in order to fix this problem, this obstacle, in my life. Does that sound like any of you guys? I mean, this was me to a T. And then I studied Ecclesiastes and God brought some pain into my life and, and it changed me. But are you a temporal optimist? One problem with this type of thinking besides it not being biblical is it trips us up. Let me paint a picture for you. You guys don't know this about me, but I love, having grown up in Arizona all my life, I'm not a big fan of the heat anymore. 
And so when winter comes along, this time of year, I love the green grass. I plant gobloads of winter grass in my backyard, and water's expensive in Tucson, so it's probably dumb for me. But let's say I'm walking around in my backyard, and I have my rose-colored glasses on, my temporal optimist hat on, and I'm saying to myself, man, this is just awesome. This grass is so lush. God, you're so good. You just want me to be happy all my days and pleasured all my days. And I'm walking around in that grass. And boom, I step on this big hunking nail. And as I fall to the ground in agony, you know, I probably let out a little cuss word or curse word. But I get to the ground and maybe I pull that nail out of my foot. And and the first thing I do, I'm like, what the what, right? Like, what is this nail doing in my temporal optimist world? This shouldn't be happening. This pain shouldn't be happening. And the reason I ask that question why is because I don't think it's normal that that pain should be in my life because I'm such a temporal optimist. And as the days go by, that wound gets infected I end up having to go to the ER, get a tetanus shot. I haven't had a tetanus shot in like 20 years. I'm supposed to get them every 10 years. But I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. I get a $10,000 bill at the ER because that's what you get, right? You don't get like a $200 bill. You get a $10,000 bill. And this pain kind of compounds and it's building. And I'm like, something's wrong with this world or something's wrong with this pain being in my life, this shouldn't be here. And maybe you're like me, I think this is most people, you usually say one of three things is wrong. And you seek to try and fix those three things. The first one maybe that you say is wrong is you say that this world is wrong and I need to fix it. So, man, I just need to, I need to invent paper nails. Then, Right? You step on a nail, it's not going to hurt, right? Or let's just get rid of nails altogether. Let's just glue things together. Then life will be better. That's kind of like the social gospel, right? If I, just, if I fix everything out there, poverty, pain, inequality, then everything will be great in here, right? Well, that's a lie. Maybe you feel like people are the problem. So let's say a couple weeks after the rehabilitation, I'm walking out in my backyard and I notice next door, man, my neighbors, they're remodeling their stinking house. Those construction guys, it's probably those construction guys that threw that nail over into my yard. Those are the guys that need to pay. I need to fix them. I'm going to sue those guys. And then I'll feel better inside. Then everything will be prosperous and happy again. Or maybe you're a guy that kind of bends more towards depression. And that nail was like the 10th thing in your life. That you had a cold and it ended up being COVID. And you couldn't go into work. And you lost your job. And, oh yeah, your dog died. And then you're walking in the grass and you step on that nail. And you're like, I just can't take it anymore. I can't take this life. I've been stuck inside, alone, secluded, enough. I can't take it anymore. And it, and it 
spirals into this like sinful shame and depression and anxiety, and maybe it even leads to suicide. A lot of people are that way. The biblical truth is that this world is broken by design of God. We can't fix it, nor should we seek to fix it. Ecclesiastes 7:13 through 14 says, "Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him." Note the two times that the word "consider" is used. Do you guys consider that? What this verse says? Have you considered it? God has made this word world perfectly broken for our benefit. God planned it this way so that we would never find utopia this side of the grave and thus we would always look for it in him and in heaven. Men change your temporal optimism to biblical realism. Set your eyes on things above, not on the things of this earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pain in this world is normal. It is part of the normal Christian life. So let me pause there. Any confusion, problems with any of that clarification? Yeah. I was just wondering about pain that you've caused and maybe the collateral damage, pain of others. Yeah, yeah. Um, Two things. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, right? When he commits the acts against uh, Uriah and Bathsheba. So, First and foremost, we need to make it right with God, absolutely. And I think there is a responsibility on our part to make it right if there's a problem in the relationship with, uh, with the people that we've harmed. You know, it, it astonishes me how difficult Jesus' teachings are. If you ever want to study, a good study on pain is Matthew chapter 5, and it seems like every direction that pain is caused, Jesus seems to be saying, it's my responsibility to deal with it. So if I cause pain, it's my responsibility to seek forgiveness and rectify the situation. If other people cause pain in my life, it's my responsibility to deal with those hurts and to rectify it inside my soul. Even if I'm, quote, innocent bystander of that pain. And so I think there are four different examples in that first or in that fifth chapter of Matthew. So I'd encourage you to to go through that. But uh, he sets the bar really high, really high. Any other questions? Yeah, Trevor. Bryce, if God brings pain in our life for our good, how hard should we try to remove that pain when it comes into our life? Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the things, um, um, uh, 
I don't know if I can tell you exactly, Trevor, but I know that James 1, 2 through, far, 2 through 4, it says, let patience have its perfect work. I think if you can, you can do something that is not outside God's will to get out of the pain you're in, I personally am game, game for it. I think what I tend to do, and maybe what others tend to do, is we tend to go against what the Bible says to get out of our pain. And so we, we push the limits of uh, being sinful or frankly, just go right into sin and do some things that we ought not to do, like abusing people, using people for our good. Um, does that make sense? So I think, I mean, some of this stuff is you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Some of this stuff, the Bible just doesn't speak to. And so you're trying to uh, figure it out as you're walking in communion with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So removing the pain, trying to remove the pain is legitimate as long as we don't start walking away from God or get a bad view of things. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. If I, I mean, if I, if I have pneumonia or, I mean, I'm going to take antibiotics for that. So, but I mean, again, other people might have a different route, essential oils. One of the things that I've always prayed when I'm in the ditch is, Lord, I'd love to get out of this ditch, but please, please don't let yeah. me get out until I learn what lesson you might have me do it because yeah. I don't want to have to go back through this again. Yeah. So it's the process of, Lord, what do you want me to learn yeah. in this pain? Yeah. You know, I, at the end of the talk, I have like 12 applications when we're amidst pain, but I do, I do believe that our tendency because it's natural inside, right? That fight or flight response is natural. And so we have to work against our natural self and not necessarily fight against it all the time or flee from it, but we have to let it do its work. And I think if we don't let the pain do its work, it ends up just being torture in our lives. Pain without any purpose is just torture, right? And I think all too often I've done that in my life, just let it be torture rather than what we're going to talk about next, transformational. Ian. Number five. So how do you, like this picture, but then when you look at Galatians 5 and it talks about the fruits of the Spirit? Yeah. Because being transparent, like this to me seems pretty, like a tough place to live, like no temporal optimism. But then on the flip side, like Galatians 5, yeah. I, like, I want to be around someone who's like a Galatians 5 type person, or even for myself. What, what specifically in Galatians 5? Where we're warring against Well, someone who's like loving, joyful, Oh, the peaceful, fruit of the Spirit. The yep, the yep, 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 yep. I, guys, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you can't be optimistic. What I'm saying is that we're drunk on temporal optimism. That we have no pessimism at all in us. And let me, let me give you an example, maybe to help uh, pin this down. So my wife and I, when we got engaged, we were on this trip over in Europe, and our next stop was in Rome. And 
My tendency is to be very optimistic with vacations. Man, I am going to find utopia. Like, I'm getting my butt kicked. My kids are zapping all my energy. I'm tired from work. I am going on vacation. Carl's bad, right? Carl's bad. I'm going to find utopia there. This is going to be awesome. In, um, it's never what I expect, right? It never meets those hopeful aspirations that I have. So my wife and I, this is a while ago, but I think we're actually pretty smart. We're like, okay, we're going to Rome. And we're like, all right, we're on the train. We're like, let's, let's actually expect the worst. It's going to be hot. There are going to be long lines. Everything's going to be expensive. The people are going to be rude. It's going to be really smelly there. And things are going to be closed. So we did that on the way on the train ride. When we got there, it wasn't half that bad. And we had a great time. We endured and we made it through Rome because we had given ourselves a little bit of a shot of pessimism. That's what I'm saying we need to do. I could totally be wrong that we grow up in this society where every sitcom, it ends with something good happening, right? Something pleasurable. There's happiness. It makes us feel good inside. All these screen times, video games, they're like hits of dopamine that we get. Makes us feel good inside. We've been brought up in this culture where we should find happiness and pleasure in utopia, this side of the grave. That's what's been fed to us. And guys, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder the world that Paul, the apostle, grew up in looked a lot different than ours. I wonder if he grew up in this world, if he had encountered the same type of pain, if he was one of us and he had been shipwrecked, he had been beaten, he had been in prison, I wonder if he would be on antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicine. I wonder if he wouldn't have committed suicide. Now, I'm just speculating he knew the world was a hard place. We don't know that. We're at war, right? Or do we? Actually, we're, on, we're at vacation. And COVID just gave us a little reminder that this world's hard. This world is a deathbed. Everything is dying. Everything's broken. Everything's elusive. And everything's deceitful. And maybe I shouldn't say everything, most things. That's the world that we live in. But we have these temporal optimist glasses on that just blind us to that fact. And we're soft as a result of it. So when pain comes into our lives, I don't have my iPhone, but I drop my iPhone and the screen cracks. Oh man, I can't handle it. It ruins my whole day or my week. That's not pain. You know, you guys know medieval times, three out of five kids never made it to their fifth birthday. They would die before their fifth birthday. Do you think that altered the way they looked at life back then? They understood that if the rain doesn't come this year, our family's not going to eat. Somebody might die. Or... What if this person comes into power? Well, 
they're just going to take our land from us. We don't have it anymore. It's not ours. We're out on the street. We got to go find a way to live. I mean, that produces some dependence on something outside of yourself. That's something being God, right? We don't have to turn to God for anything. We have, the, we have so many different safety nets underneath us. We don't need to turn to God for anything. I'm soft. I'm not necessarily saying you guys are soft, but I certainly am soft. Any other questions? I can't even. Okay. So let's move on to pain. What is our misunderstanding with pain? As I hang out with guys, Christian men, and we kind of work through painful trials and tribulations in their lives, as I look in the mirror, I get the impression that most of us, we put an equal sign between pain and evil and pleasure and good. We literally think that pain is evil and pleasure is good. Do you do that? Do you believe that pain is evil and pleasure is good? As best I can tell from the Bible, it's not a moral issue. That pain does not equal evil and pleasure does not equal good, but it rather depends on how it is given and how it is received as to whether it's good or evil. And we've already shown that ultimately pain is given in our lives by a sovereign and good God, that God gives it to us for our perfect good. So the question then really becomes, how are we receiving it, right? Are we screwing up God's intended purposes with it? Or are we receiving it properly um, and letting it have its effect in our lives? And so one way we can do that is we can say, okay, let's look at myself in the mirror right now. What, what are the fruits in my life that pain is producing? Are they good fruits or are they bad fruits? Because if they're bad fruits, then probably we're, we're receiving pain improperly in our lives. If they're good fruits, maybe we're receiving it properly. So let's start off. If it's not processed properly, it can produce these things. Complainers and grumpy old men. There's a lot of them out there. Do you complain? Have you allowed frustration to fester long enough to produce bitterness and hardness in your life? Maybe you're an addict or a pleasure seeker at heart. Are you trying to numb the pain with unrestrained sinful lusts like sex or pornography? How about drugs or alcohol? Are you seeking pleasure wherever it might be found? You know, guys, this is a big one. There was a point in my life where I felt like I was completely void of anything pleasurable. And there's this, this drive and this desire to go looking for it. And you got to be really, really careful where you find it. I like vanilla milkshakes, so that was okay for me to partake in. Or maybe you're an abuser. Do you get angry and demand of people when you don't get your way? On the flip side, pain received well has great benefits. We've said it's God's gift, so what does that gift produce when we receive it properly? Well, one, it reveals to us a savior leading to salvation. How many of you guys 
me for sure, pain in your life was instrumental in bringing you to Jesus. Maybe not all of you, but I would say most of you. And I've put some verses up here that I'd encourage you to go look at. Um, and they are the ones that I'm referencing when I'm uh, making these points. We've already talked about how it makes us a slave of Christ. Do you understand you're not your own so that when somebody slaps you on the one cheek, you can turn the other one to them also because actually your body isn't your own? When they compel you to go one mile, you can go another mile with them because your energy and your time are not your own? When they sue you to take away your tunic, you could give them your cloak also because your money is not your own, it's his. We're just stewards of it. Man, if we, if we actually really understood, if I understood that I was a slave of Christ, a lot of my problems with these commandments would evaporate. And remember, the measure of being a slave of Christ is not necessarily whether you think you're a slave of Christ or whether other people think you're a slave of Christ, but it truly is when people treat you as a slave of Christ, how do you do amidst those situations? When they treat you like a slave, it finally dawned on me, I think Walt said that once, he said it many times, but probably the 10th time it dawned on me, yeah, when people slap me on the cheek and treat me like a slave, how do I respond amidst those situations? That actually is what proves whether I'm a slave of Christ or not. It produces endurance. And don't, don't get confused here. This is not us becoming stronger, but this is actually us becoming weaker in learning to depend on Christ more, right? It refines our hope. Man, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. That verse in Philippians 1.21 where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you guys really believe that? Like, do you wish that today was the day that you would die? That day will be the best day of your life. I cannot wait for that day. Is your hope in Jesus in eternity becoming your greatest hope in life? And lastly, it produces Christ-like character. And we talked about the fruits of the Spirit Ian did. Are those being produced in your life? So ask yourself the question, what fruit is pain producing in your life? Received well, it has tremendous potential for good. Received poorly, it destroys the good. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pain is God's gift, getting us ready to spend an eternity with him. It's part of God's process of sanctification from start to finish. It is our responsibility to receive it well, to allow it to be our coach training us to righteousness. So, I'm going to hit the pause button just a little bit. And I'm going to talk about application. But what I want to do, I just want to review this phrase because this is really 
the crux of what I'm trying to get across in this talk, that our sovereign God, in his perfect goodness, he takes depraved men like us, and he graciously mixes us up in a broken world full of pain and suffering in order to sanctify our souls and make us ready for heaven with him as his humble slaves. Do you guys believe this? Right up here. I'm pretty certain this is important to me finishing the race well. It's important to you guys finishing the race well. But, you know, these are massive truths, right? I've been a Christian now for 25 years or so. And I, yeah, I'm, I surprised myself. It really disappointed me how poorly I did amidst COVID in my personal faith. But these are massive. They're too big to be swallowed whole. You got to chew on them bit by bit by bit. They've got to be thought on, prayed on, meditated on, and above all applied in our lives. Even then, they're still going to seem distant and foreign from our hearts because they're so contrary to everything inside of us and everything out in our world. In the end, it's necessary that we be good stewards of God's gift of pain, but that's not sufficient. We're trying to fit cross-shaped truths into man-shaped holes. And ultimately, that only happens through the Holy Spirit but it's necessary for us to do our part. These guys are going to pass out a little card. Trevor, I can't even see that time. Okay. Okay, thank you. Are there enough for everybody? Anybody not get? I'm just going to briefly go over these. But what I would encourage you guys to do is to keep this card handy. That maybe some of you young guys feel like you haven't really gone through any pain. It's coming. I mean, every day you go through pain in different forms. But seriously, whether it's, right, the death of your will and doing something that you don't want to do, if it's physical pain like us old guys feel every morning, if it's the pain of circumstances in your life not going your way, et cetera, et cetera, they're all, I mean, it's relentless, right, over and over and over again. This card, one of my buddies just keeps it on his, his refrigerator, and these are six things to do amidst pain and six things to focus on amidst pain. And I'm, you know, the things that you focus on are these things that we've talked about so far in this talk, that sovereign, God is sovereign, that he's perfectly good, that pain is necessary, that pain is normal, 
that we have a, a responsibility to receive pain well, and then you focus on your reward in heaven. And just briefly, will somebody read 2 Corinthians 5, or no, excuse me, 417? Thank you. Second, Second Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Okay, sorry. I'm catching up. So he makes a comparison or a contrast between um, three sets of two things. He says that, that this life is going to be affliction, right? But that affliction is going to be light. And it's going to be momentary. Do you understand that these things are working towards these things on this side? that they're working towards glory and it's going to be exceeding and it's going to be eternal. Have you considered that? Will you also read Romans 8.18? Paul considered that. He considered it deeply and I think that's what helped him run that race with endurance. Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You catch what he said? For I consider that the sufferings that I'm going through, this side of the grave, they're not even going to compare. That's what that verse is saying. Paul's saying that also in 2 Corinthians. Have you considered that? That's what we're supposed to be doing in focusing on these things. The six things to do amidst pain, and we talked a little bit about this already, obey. You can't curse God or others in your mind, your mouth, or your members. You got to hunker down, let patience have its perfect work. Sometimes you just got to sit amidst the pain and and you know you have to sit amidst the pain when it's outside your control. And there are so many things in life that way that you can absolutely do nothing about. Because there are powers that are bigger than you that have brought this pain into your life. And you just got to sit down and say, your will be done. Focus on Christ. That's the, the six things. Think on the items that are on the back of that card. Ask of God, right? Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for endurance. Ask him for relief. Man, this hurts God. I want to endure it, but also stop the pain when you've done your, your transformation. Thank him for it. Man, this is tough, tough, tough. If you can apply and actually understand some of these principles, I think you can get to the other side where you truly, truly, truly believe that what God is doing in your life is benefiting you, and then you can genuinely say thank you. Maybe it goes something like this. Lord, 
you've put me in more pain than I, <clears throat> than I ever would have imagined. God, you've broken me like I never could have thought possible. Lord, I hate everything about this world. I can't wait to be in eternity with you. You laid something up in eternity for me, and I can't wait to be reunited. God, I think I remember now where you don't want us to have our hopes here in the temporal. I think you, I remember, you want us to move our motivation, seek the things that are above rather than the things on the earth. I can see now why you did that, Lord. I can see why you did that in our family. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I couldn't put anything up into that heavenly savings account, but you did. And now that's where my heart is. And I long for that day to be there. You, you go over these truths in your mind. And you're like, yes, this is really good. This is good. It's perfectly good. And then or my money, or, 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 or. Man, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And lastly, I think it's so important. The AA guys, the Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this down. Today is so important to focus on. Do your best today to serve God and serve God alone. Don't worry about things tomorrow. They'll worry about themselves, right? But focus on today being obedient, thanking God, hunkering down. Let him take care of the other stuff. So important. That's our responsibility. So thank you guys. God bless you men. Yeah. Blessings.